Well, my first ambition was to be a doctor because I thought by being a doctor I could get my mother back her legs. And I mean, that's quite interesting because I did, in fact, become a psychoanalyst. And in a way, what you do as a psychoanalyst is you get people back on their legs. Hello and welcome to Confessions. My name is Giles Fraser. This is the podcast where I'm joined by a distinguished guest in an attempt to find out what makes them tick. I'm going to try and drill down into their core beliefs to understand better who they are and what they're on about. And bearing their soul in the stall this week is um, the wonderful, wonderful Sally Vickers, um, who is a woman of many parts, a writer, novelist, a poet, um, oh my word, psychoanalyst uh, and general good egg. And um, teacher of literature, teacher of literature. There we are. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and mother and grandmother and um, many things between. So the way we normally start these things, Sally, is I, would, I just talk about uh, to start with. I ask you about your background and where you came from and your mum and dad and your home life when you were growing up and and something about that and how maybe some of your values and the things that are important to you grew out of that. So perhaps you could describe that for me just to start with. Well, um, it, how, how much time have we got? Yes. <laughs> because I always say my background, my parents' background, is a lot more interesting than me. And I'm quite often um, asked why I don't write a book about it. So I'll tell you a bit about my background. Um, my parents met in the Student Communist Party. Uh-huh. My mother was a scholarship girl from a, she liked to say working class, but I would say what used to be called lower middle class, <laughs> a class that's more or less disappeared, I think, I hope. Um, my dad came from a moneyed family. Uh-huh. I've just looked... But both communists. Yes. I've just looked up his records in the um, National Archive actually looking for his father's records because his father was killed in 1916 in the First World War. And I was looking them up for my granddaughter, Rowan, who you know, who was doing a project on the First World War, as everybody is, because it's the 100 years um, celebration of the armistice. So looking up my grandfather, I found my father. And I find that his files are still with the national security. Oh, he was and a person he, of interest. He was down as a communist sympathiser as a, at school. At school? At school. And this is confirmed in a later entry, because you get the entries, from his correspondence as a prisoner of war to his wife. In a census At letter. school, at the s- government are interested in... I know. Oh, my word. I knew he was in the, the security service um, catalogue. Um, because I knew that he had got a job at the BBC when he came home from the war. He escaped from prisoner of war camp right at the end of the war, came back, was demobbed, got a very good position at the BBC, and then suddenly it was removed from him. That's shocking. And he later discovered it was because he was considered a person of um, in danger of national security. So it's quite interesting. But the... But the um, the, the file goes on until the 1960s, when long after he'd left the Communist Party and was a trade union leader and a very, very solid supporter of the Labour Party. So that's really interesting. But it's really interesting for communist sympathies in 1934 when at school. So that's just extraordinary. That extraordinary. So a teacher grasped him up? Or, uh... 
Well, he was taught by George Rudet, who was a Marxist historian who later became a world expert on the French Revolution. Is this a sort of posh, well-known school type? It's Stowe, which right, okay. his, his mother always referred to as that progressive school. <laughs> it all came from sending him to that progressive school. <laughs> oh, so his mum was quite posh then? His mum was posh. His, his dad was posh. They were moneyed. Um, and I think with the death of his father, he um, rebelled against all that because she married again. A horrible man, a horrible, snobbish, fortune-hunting man. But he was also um, at school with John Cornford, who was a very brilliant young man, got a scholarship to uh, Cambridge at 16 and went off to fight the Spanish Civil War and was killed the day after his 21st birthday. And I think he was the person who got Dad into the Communist Party. Anyway, that's the one, right? So he met my mum at Cambridge. She was the scholarship girl. And just before he um, went off to France, in, he, he enlisted in 1939, went off to France in February 1940. Just They got married just before um, in registry office, had spent their honeymoon on Cambridge Station having ham sandwiches. And he was captured in that, that April, and he spent the rest of the war almost in a prisoner of war camp. Meanwhile, he was reported missing, believed dead, and oh. uh, my mother took up with his best friend. Oh, my word, Sally. A brilliant young physicist called Ram Nahum, <coughs> who I think was the love of her life. And in July 1942, a bomb, three bombs fell upon Cambridge, only one on a civilian house, which happened to be the house where my mother was with Ram, in bed, and he was killed on top of her. She thought she was dying because they couldn't get her out of the wreckage. And what she thought were her last known words were, uh, goodbye, boys, um, I'm done for, long live Stalin, long live the party. <laughs> Which is, yes, you're allowed to laugh because it's pretty grimly awful, but that should be your last words. And was Ram, um, her lover, I guess, uh, was he a commie as well? Yes, they all were. Right, OK. He was, he was a rather sort of... Um, and then... Famous among the communist movement. I mean, he was—he was sort of a well-known, rather charismatic, very charismatic figure. Jewish, um, came from a Manchester uh, manufacturing company um, family. And she didn't know your dad was alive. Well, she did by this time. Okay. But she'd fallen in love with Ryan. I see. So Dad came back to a wife. Well, she—they dragged her out, but her legs were burnt off. So she had two artificial legs. Um, she didn't tell him. She always said it was because she didn't discourage him, but I think it was because she'd have had to explain Ram, actually. My mum was, was a very interesting figure. I mean, crafty or what? So she never said to him no. about... She never told him about this love of her life? No, but, but he discovered. I see. I mean, he could hardly not, because they were no, all no, friends. No. They were all in the party together. But he came back, and they stayed together. And I think that was partly because he was... For all his communist sympathies, he was brought up with a code of public school honour. So you you were brought up in this in this house then, which there were there's politics. Sounds like there's secrets. Lots of secrets. And uh, absolute atheism, of course, which went with the communists. I see, yes, yes, yes. They left the party in fifty six when the um Russians invaded Hungary. Or rather, Dad left before 56, as it in fact says on his um, national security 
um, archives. My mum hung on because the communists had been incredibly good to her after she was bombed. They looked after her. They really did. I mean, they rallied around. I mean, there's much to be said for those communist sympathisers. I don't any longer agree with the politics, but I think there was something about the camaraderie. And as you and I have often said, you know, there are a lot of associations with early Christianity. There, are, radical, there really are, yeah, radical, yeah. Radical, yeah. radical. Um, communitarian, communitarian, very... Communitarian, yes, sense of equality among everybody, sharing. You and know. a big picture of the world, you know. I mean, yeah. wanting, to, you know, the idea that it wasn't just about getting on with your... No. Going down the shops and doing your thing. There was no, actually no, no. some sort of great mission about... There was a great mission. There was a great idealism, Yes. So I think the sense of honour uh, kept them together. They didn't think she could have children because her pelvis was so badly damaged. But being my mum, who she was a remarkable woman, she shopped around until she found um, a consultant obstetrician in Liverpool, which is where she grew up. And he took her on. And although he was a private obstetrician, he delivered her under the National Health Service because I was born in 1948. So I am a baby of the National Health Service. And he, I was his first national health baby, uh-huh. which is quite fabulous. Um, so it was an interesting time. But, I mean, there was a lot of, as you can imagine, tension in the household. Yes. And did you have brothers and sisters? Later, she had a, uh, my brother, but the, we're six years apart. OK, so it, it was like for a while that you were an only child. Yes, quite a lot and I was it. also the sort of the, the miracle child, the child that, you know, I've written about this for quite a long time. I thought of Ram as my real father because she told me about him when I was much too young to understand. I see, goodness gracious me. I mean, how was how was So this there were things that you were told that you weren't allowed to tell your dad? Yes, very much. I, I was her confidante and her legs, which, of course, was... Um, you were her legs. I was her legs. She was very athletic. She was a hockey blue, uh, a very good runner, a very good swimmer. And I've got only one picture of my mother's legs as an adult woman. There was a film made of her and her contemporaries in Cambridge, and she's diving into the River Cam, and I just this flash of her legs, and I've played that so many times just to see my mother's legs. It's extraordinary, this is, because you and I know each other quite well, and I didn't know any of this. (laughs) Well, I don't... I've, I've learnt to talk about it more recently because I've come to think, you know, this is... This is my past and I can't disown it or cover it but up. But it's also, it's also I, I can understand how a child who grew up in that sort of a household, I begin to get some insight of why the sort of inner life may become so fascinating and so rich and so complex. Yes, I had a sense of both my parents' inner life. I mean, my father had an affair and I met the woman, his mistress. I have a very vivid picture <coughs> of her. She was a rather very attractive, dark-haired woman um, with very red lipstick. I mean, that's what I remember most. <laughs> and I asked my mother about it um, later, and she said, yes, indeed, he had an affair. And I mean, I'm not surprised, you know. Yes. Come back, find your young athletic wife with, with two missing legs, and you discover she's been having an affair with a man who's been your best friend. You are liable to have an affair, I think. I mean, I think... The great thing he did was he stuck by her, and they did make a life of it together, and they did make eventually a very good marriage. Okay, they were there was there was the, they were happy in some way. There was a, they found a way of being happy. I think politics did a lot. I think their shared communism, um, and then their very strong shared socialism. I mean, my father was a Labour councillor, my mother was a social worker. You know, they had this very very strong sense of of. Um, 
So, so let's talk about you growing up here okay. and how you and how you sort of, I don't know, how your values are being shaped at this time. Well, my first ambition was to be a doctor because I thought by being a doctor I could get my mother back her legs. And I mean, that's quite interesting because I did, in fact, become a psychoanalyst. And in a way, what you do as a psychoanalyst is you get people back on their legs. Yeah. It's one way of looking at yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Or you help people who have suffered atrocities or traumas to sufficiently come to terms with them to be able to function with luck as well as they did before and with even greater luck better sometimes. So I think my mother's injury certainly did that for me. Um, it would have been impossible for me for ever to marry somebody who was right wing. I mean, I've always known that. And I can remember when I was at university being quite attracted to somebody and then discovering he voted Conservative. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> well, it wasn't just in my head. My whole sort of sexual desire disappeared. Oh, wow. Which is quite interesting. Wow. I mean, I didn't kind of have a conflict. My, right. my attraction to this person disappeared, which is quite interesting. But if you have a mother who, when she's dying, is not saying love to my husband or my mum or my to dad. to Stalin. Saying, long live Stalin. Long live the party. Yeah. You can see that in my blood is a sense that somehow it would be a massive betrayal. There's a to... lot of um, th there's a lot of um, I know a number of uh, children of communists uh, from this period, and a number of them sort of really did rebel quite strongly against that background and the party and so forth. But you sort of eased away from it. Would that be right? Well, my rebellion was was religion, which you will understand. Yes. I mean, my mother had a story. My mother was quite a cruel person, which is understandable because she'd undergone a very cruel fate. <clears throat> but she could be quite cruel. She was very, very exacting of me because, you know, I was the miracle child and I had to both do best but not do better than her, which was oh a dear, complicated tightrope. It's a, a narrow rope. window. Yes, or well, tightrope, of course, yes. is an interesting analogy. <laughs> yes. Um, but I remember coming back from school and saying, Mummy, is it all right if I pray? And her bursting into fits of laughter. And then she went around telling people this, telling her friends. Oh, you were derided, Absolutely publicly derided. denounced almost. Well, I wasn't denounced. No, they, they didn't do denouncing. They weren't okay. that bad. But in a way it was worse because it was mocked at. Right, so yes. I understood very early that this was not an acceptable way to think. But, like a lot of children, I think, I did have a very profound religious sense. And I did pray, and I was extremely ardent in my hymn singing. And I remember when I moved on to my secondary school, um, everybody went to church. I lied and pretended we went to church because I knew not to go to church would be to make me a social outcast. And I sort of felt that going to church is really where I ought to go but it wasn't something I could do. I didn't ever tell my parents, not until I wrote Miss Garnet's Angel in the year 2000. And yep. by this time, my mother had Alzheimer's. Right. So she couldn't, she, she was not quite poorly enough not to know I'd written a book. And she claimed to have read it, but I don't think she could have done. But not till I wrote Miss Garnet's Angel and not till it was published in 2000. I wrote it in 1998. Did they have any idea I had any religious sympathy? And was this a was, did you were, when you were writing it? Was there a sense of a sort of confession of religious 
sort of sympathy that was going on in there? I don't know. Confession. Um, no, I don't think confession, actually, because, I mean, it, I mean, it's it's. I mean, there's a lot about the Jews in it as well. It's not a specifically religious book, um, Christian book. It's religious, but not... It's about religion. And the Archangel Raphael, who's the sort of central figure, was, in fact, a Zoroastrian figure that the Jews brought back from their exile in Babylon. In fact, the idea of angels comes from the Zoroastrians. The Jews brought it back after their exile in Babylon, and it got sort of transferred into the Christian religion. So it's a much older... Um, religious symbol the angel so the book was more about religion but it is about a woman who starts as a communist and her life experiences crack open those prejudices or those reserves um, and she she accepts a wider view of life so I think it was a kind of declaration more than a confession I mean I wasn't ashamed of it no I just didn't really want to get into a, a thing with it with my parents but yes. I do remember some years earlier, having an argument with my mother about the parable of the work of the labourers in the vineyard. Okay, that being paid different amounts. Being paid different amounts, and the and the first shall be last, and the ones who come late in the day get the same amount of money. And my mother said, "I think it's a ridiculous parable, and it just shows the whole thing is ridiculous." And I said, "Why not? It's good trade union policy." Which <laughs> <laughs> shut her up. <laughs> So I think it was quite an easy transition, you see, into... You know, William Morris. William, William Morris. Morris Ruskin, Ruskin. 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 What did I say, Morris? Ruskin. Book. Unto, unto the, the last or something like that. Unto this last. He wrote, the he wrote, he wrote, he wrote, it's about that uh, It's parable, about that parable, yeah. That's right. Um, Wonderful. Yeah, so those those sort of radical, and, and people like William Blake, who I was a great devotee of, those kind of radical... Um, Christians very much spoke to me. So there's a mystical element, and then there's a sort of Blake is, a, I guess, a classic in this, a mystical element. But there's a sort of there's still a radical, world transforming type of yes, aspect. Yes, and to I it. think both of those things attracted me to the. I think I think what what the, my idea of Christianity, anyway, and you and I know that there are many ways of looking at Christianity, and you and I have both come to quite um, eccentric views of Christianity. I think, <laughs> but I, I mean, I think it combines the social. Undoubtedly, yes. Um, with the mystical, and that's and that's a combination that I found attractive. And it was the mystical I missed in my upbringing. I mean, I remember reading C.S. Lewis the um, Narnia books because they were given to me by a wonderful librarian who was the inspiration for my latest novel, The Librarian, which is about a children's librarian. Waterstones Book of the Month in November. Yeah, well, that's another story. Um, Sorry, I've distracted you. I wanted to give it a plug. Your, your... It's, it's nice of you to give it a plug, but Waterstones were very dictatorial about, about how the book should be presented. Oh, really? And, well, the hardback was utterly beautiful. Um, and the paperback... Well, never mind. I'm very grateful. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, it's about a children's librarian, and it's really a testament to the children's librarian who gave me the books that really have fed my writing life and my interest starting with C.S. Lewis, which my parents which I had 40 fits. I had no idea it was about Christianity. None at all. And I think lots of children don't. It's not till I've read it later that I've realised that he's plugging away a bit. Um, but it's a wonderful I don't book. Think, I don't think people realise Harry Potter's about Christianity as well, which I think, I think it is, all that sacrificial stuff, and people think read it and... 
And it's not in the same way that well, C.S. Lewis is. To be but... honest, I've not read Harry Potter. Oh, I... you should, well, Sally. I've, well, I've only watched the films, you see, because I watched them with Rowan. OK, well, we'll have to come And I'm essentially this. a Pullman fan more than a Yes, room. yes, that's all right, too. That's good. <laughs> this is a both hand. Sorry, I interrupted you. There's too much to say here. Well, in those in the books you showed me, there was first of all that, but the very important two very important ones. One was George MacDonald, who you know was a radical minister and a real eccentric, and he was really famous for his um, adult fiction when he was writing. <coughs> but his children's books are much less read nowadays, but still quite popular in the fifties when I was growing up. The Princess and the Goblin, the Princess and Curdy, but the one I really loved, At the Back of the North Wind which is about a boy who's dying. But the interesting thing is, as a child, you don't know that's what's happening. You kind of know it and you don't know it at right. the same time. Right. And it's got a very strong mystical element, which is somehow um, one's unconscious can take it in while one's conscious mind is not understanding what's going on. And that really fed and nourished a part of me that my parents for all their excellence and excellent moral values and excellent social values they really didn't have that and that's really what I had to acquire for myself. It's interesting to try and work out what it is that you know I mean because I share quite a lot of the, the politics not the same but something of that. No I know we do, so we, we do yeah, yeah, we do. Yeah. But, but uh, that, there is this sort of something that you really can't quite get at within the language just of of the left within the language of politics that there is a there is a sort of uh, there is something out of the corner of your behind your eye you can't quite see which you know this world is not conclusion type you know what, what how does that wonderful poem end um narcotics cannot still a tooth that nibbles at the soul yes. you know yes. <laughs> Well, There's something great. that nibbles at the soul, isn't something there? Something that nibbles at the soul. I think, well, it's my quarrel with humanism, actually. I mean, people say, well, there's nothing in Christianity that isn't in humanism or Judaism that isn't in humanism. But I think there is. There is this sense of something more powerful than any of us. And I think if you take the human being, even at his or her best and finest, as your measure you are missing out on a vast, imponderable and unknowable. I mean, I've just, I've just been reading the new translation of St. Augustine's Confessions, which is a book I'm very fond of, and, you know, all psychoanalysts like the Confessions for rather obvious reasons. Um, and I've got a big quarrel with Augustine because I don't like the idea of original sin. I'm much more in favour of the orthodox tradition, which says we have an aptitude for sin a propensity to sin, but we're not tainted from birth. So I've got this big quarrel with Augustine. But I do think his idea of God as the thing that lies behind all our other desires, because it allows for the desiring, which I think is part of the human condition, which is why I'm not a Buddhist. I think to, to, to remove desire is to remove something, some essential spark I agree. in the human... Yeah, I agree. I'm the some same essential effect. energy... Yeah. But the thing about Augustine is he doesn't he doesn't do away with desire, but he perceives the desire as for something that is ultimately unknowable. And there's something very important to me about that, because it 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 takes the it takes the weight of us somehow. It 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 allows for 
that's what original. Sorry, I'm going to have an argument with you yeah, about you original sin because I'm yeah. like, because I'm a, I'm much more fan of original sin. You're a fan of original. Well, it's because I, so I think it's had a bad press. Original sin. So I think original <laughs> sin is often, uh, you know, all about aren't you naughty sexual beings? Um, you're imbued with something. No, I don't you know. think that. Okay, I mean, what I quite like about it is, um, and I suppose I feel this about myself really, but. That, that we are sort of fundamentally broken in some way and that we're in need of fixing and that we're not good self-fixers and that something about that fixing re requires the not obvious intervention but the, the, the sort of movement that comes from outside to me. You know, an infusion. In, there's a lovely word. It requires an infusion of something. So I am dependent upon that which is outside my control and that for me is like... That, that, I suppose that's where desire comes from. Well, I think that's the Augustine position, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Well, if you go back to that story of the garden, which I think is a great story, um, one I wouldn't mind, have write, mind writing myself, um, the so-called sin is, is, is to eat from the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. I think that's really interesting because it's, it's the moment when human beings start to say what's right and wrong. It's t it's, and I think the point is it's not really for us to decide ultimately what's right or wrong. It's for something larger. We're exceeding our pay grade, as it I were. I think right? we're exceeding our pay grade. And I think that's the point. It's not that they are punished by being sent out of the Garden of Eden. It's that they have to go once they arrogate to themselves the decision about what's right and wrong. Because in my view, that's where most harm comes from human beings. Their, their belief they are right about what's right and wrong. Yeah, 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 yeah. But you see, <coughs> the story does allow for them having um, been whole before that moment, before they're broken. I mean, I agree about the broken. And I think that's where the orthodox tradition is, is kinder and feels to me truer, that there is a wholeness within us that we lose when we step out into the as, the, as, as the shades of the prison house begin to draw about us, that we lose, that's when the brokenness begins. And this is, I suppose, also where you're, I mean, it goes back to your mum's condition and, you know, you wanting to be a, a healer, as it were. Yes, from quite yeah, I very much did want to be a healer, yeah. From quite early on. Um, and this sense of, these things all play together, don't they? Which, it, 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 it's, it's, and I can see why, End up, you end up, you know, seeking your healing vocation through writing and and trying to describe what the human condition is like and what people are like and how silly and foolish we are and how wonderful we are and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah, I had a. I was talking the other day about about the librarian and um, a man came up to me afterwards because I was explaining how I came to write the book and how my parents had been very bookish but actually very poor because dad was out of work because he was a communist and lost two jobs so we had to go to the library though I think we'd have gone anyway and that's how I managed to get books that they wouldn't otherwise have given me and he asked me he said how has your your leftist leanings affected your writing and I thought a bit and I said well I do write about the dispossessed and people on the hinterland and people who are broken and I mean I'm not unusual in that I mean I think most writers are more interested in in the broken than the so-called whole. Um, but I think that's where my focus is. And how, through being broken, 
you can, in fact, have more access to a wider vision of life and a, a wider understanding that... I mean, I'm not a Pollyanna. I don't think all the bad things that happen to people are necessarily, in the end, good for them. Yes. But I think that if you're working in any kind of healing profession, you have to have a notion that what is broken cannot so much be mended but give access to a wider, richer vision of life and a richer understanding and a richer relationship. So I think that's where the the business of, of psychoanalyzing people and the business of writing about people comes in. Um, I mean, I think it's when I'm sure I, I feel like complete. I mean, I feel like it's true in my own life as well. Actually, is that the is the broken bits are the bits where you feel um, that you grow in ways you never thought you were able to grow or capable. Because you wouldn't of want to. You wouldn't. No, want no. To why be, would you go why there? Why would you want to? Well, that horrible stuff that I that supposed yes. and that, that I went through and so forth, Dreadful, which, I, yes. which I hated. I mean, you know. Yeah. Well, I remember you at the and, time, and and it was horrible and painful, and and um, you know, I sort of. You know, went through a sort of, I suppose, some sort of collapse after it, whatever. But that, and you wouldn't wish that on anyone, really. No. But I couldn't be the person I am now, or feel that without without having gone through any of that. So, you know, those sorts of breakages are, and you spend your life holding your hands with people as they go through those breakages, which is why it's such a. Well, I don't anymore. Yeah, I, I yeah. Only, I only you have now. done. I you have, have done. I have done. Although I do feel. A sort of responsibility for my characters as well. I mean, it's a silly thing to say because they aren't flesh and blood. And in one sense, they're not real, but they are also real. And Archetypes. You're a Jungian, aren't you? That's your... I'm a Jungian by training, yes. Yeah, OK. Um, I have quite a lot of quarrels with Jung, but... Right. I probably won't have time to go into those. <laughs> <laughs> um, as a character, I prefer Freud, as a man. But, yes. yeah, I am a Jungian, I suppose. Um... I, I do I do have archetypes. The Archangel Raphael's an archetype. God's an archetype in Mr. Go Like This Holiday. But the I librarian think must be an archetype of some sort. Yes, she probably is. But the children she affects are not. And they are okay. like real children. Okay. And I and it's I, I do suffer for them. And when things don't go right for them, and for one of these three children that I write about, once some things don't go right, I kind of mind. And you might say, well, I could make that better because I'm her author but but in a way I'm not and I suppose that's if you believe in that sort of God that's how that sort of God would feel about his creation wow that's really interesting you just <laughs> couldn't write the happy ending for some people because no. it just wouldn't be I don't know this isn't going to be the right way of putting it but true to who they are or there isn't any sense of realism about that I mean presumably so what you're saying is you have to be you you actually have a responsibility to be extremely realistic about your characters. I have a responsibility to give them free will. <coughs> and all the all those arguments about free will and God. That's really know, weird because you're writing them. I mean, I'm saying I the know. obvious thing here, know, but, but you're giving is, them free will. But this and, is the analogy with God. Yes, I mean, it is. I'm, yes, I'm, I can see I'm that. I'm sorry to take on this grandiose. No, no. <laughs> I, I knew this was an important interview, but I didn't think it was that important. Well, <laughs> I'm I, in the presence of God. I don't really think of God as a writer myself, although that was the point of Mr. Golightly's holiday, that he was a writer and he was rewriting his great work, and that was the joke. But, um, yeah, if you give your characters free will, they have to evolve in their own way. And I think in almost every book there's been a character who 
whose whose life has not ended as happily as he or she might want, and there's nothing I could do about it. And that's a very odd feeling. If you start to if you start to fiddle about middle, it doesn't work. Well, I mean, it might be more a commercial book, and I did have a rather unhappy experience with my last book when my editor said she 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 was disappointed that one particular relationship didn't end well. I mean, she didn't try and make me change it, but she said she found it it was a pity. And I said, I know it is a pity, but that's how it is. I'm, I said, I'm sorry too. <laughs> <laughs> There's some. Um... <laughs> it, it's very interesting what it is that you can do in a novel that you can't do in 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 any other sort of form. You know that there are ideas you can get at. There are there are there are there are things that you can explore in a novel that can't be explored in a newspaper article or a, or, no. or, a, or even a or even a long, you know, a non-fiction work. There's something that you can get there, which is when. I mean, it feels to me like you know everyone's allowed to have their say from different perspectives. You don't have to resolve the perspectives. You don't have to. You don't have to come to the the, the great conclusion to which the argument all points, which is like which is life, you know. And I sort of, I, I, and as somebody who is who's often conflicted about things and contradictory about things, I always quite like seeing um, the unresolved nature of the of the novel. But that's I I maybe that's uh, what what is it about the novel that mean that that I mean other than you being good at it and all that sort of stuff. I think the main thing about the novel for me, um, I, I was I was listening to you and, and trying to trying to think what it is about the novel. I think for me the main thing about the novel and what I get from people who write to me about my books, is that you can get to know a character in a novel more closely than you can ever get to know a living human being. Because the author, if she or he is good enough, can give you what is going on in the consciousness of that person, and if they're really good, in the unconscious of that person, so that you can get clues about how they are unconsciously reacting or feeling. In a way that even in a very deep analysis, psychoanalysis, you will never get to know another human being. And I think for me, that has always been the important thing about the novel, that I feel I know the people in novels more truthfully and more, um, and with fewer of my own projections onto them. That's again a godlike type of relationship. It's too. a very special relationship, and I have a feeling that's why novels are important to people. I mean, when I was teaching literature, I used to say a great novel isn't something necessarily we understand. It understands us. So when you write about Anna Karenina or uh, Emma and Jane Austen, when you, when you read about them or Pip in Great Expectations, you will recognise elements in your own relationship relationships, relationship to the world, relationship to money, class, love, whatever. Um, and and it, I think it, it, it removes that existential loneliness from which we all suffer from. You know, that you, I think you understand very well. 
there's a sense in which I think we're all lonely. And yes. I think what yes. what what great fiction does is it it produces a reality that reflects our own and and and, and with with which we're in sympathy. And it has the sort of weight of our own. You know, it has yes. the, it has the has, has you know yes. it, and 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 so that you so novels exist so we're not lonely. I mean, I mean Yes. It, and and I I would include plays as well. I mean, I used to talk to my students about Hamlet and I used to say I'd ask them this question, is Hamlet real? And there's a sense in which Hamlet is realer than you or me because you know, Hamlet's going to be there long after we're dead. You see, I find this. <laughs> the, the, this maybe this may explain something about. I I like reading plays, but I often don't like going to see plays performed. No, uh, I don't much. <laughs> so, uh, but I'm so with Hamlet. There's a good example. I can, you know, read Hamlet and imaginatively construct Hamlet, and then have a relationship about this sort of doubting, tortured, mm. you know, very complex, conflicted. very conflicted character. And yes, absolutely, vividly real. I find that something is subtracted from that when I see it on the stage. No, I agree with you. And I, unless I, it's Simon Russell Beale, or unless it's brilliant, but most of the time it's subtracted. You know. Yeah, I agree with you, and it's particularly Hamlet or King Lear, and yeah, you know, Le- the, these yeah. are the ones that this, it's very, very yes. hard to. Prospero for me, actually. Or Prospero, yes, yeah. I, mean, I agree with you about that. No, I agree, but I'm, <coughs> I think to go back to the reality, there's a sense in which you know Hamlet's not born. He just appears. He's made. He dies, but he wasn't born. I but see. he's totally real. Yes. So what's real? You see, yes. this is this is one of my big questions. What yes. is what is real? Yes. What is yes. real? Yes. We, is what's happening here real? Yes. But yes. between us, we've now got Hamlet, and he's pretty real, isn't he? Yeah. To yeah. both of us. So, I think what. I people hope use I'm... people use. Fi- sorry, I'm going to interrupt you. No, interrupt I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you. No, you can. Um, but I'm I'm always fascinated by the way in which fiction, the word fiction, is used as a derogatory term, like myth. Like that's just a fiction. That's just a fiction. Or well, that's just some a sort of fiction. Yeah. Yes. You know. Or, or if somebody wants to be rude to me on Twitter about what it is that I believe in, they'll call it a fiction. Well, you're lucky they only call it that effort <laughs> <laughs> they call it worse than that but nonetheless i'm just in that would be, that would be a word that people would use in yes. this derogatory sense and i mean we live in i think we live in times which are you know very sort of empirically minded very um and and i you know i find myself out of sync with that sort of totally out of sync i am yes. yeah yeah well we're good yeah. um uh, but and when people say that about fiction, I think right, I can't, I can't see that's any great. You know, I, I'm not insulted by you. Well, you know, you know some what? fiction is enormously true and great Wait, and wonderful. This is my response. If somebody talks about myth, which is the other thing they do, that's a myth. Yes, yes, yes. Or fiction like that, I always say, fiction is something that gives us the facts, oh. in a way that faction simply can't. Because faction comes with the bias of the teller. Whereas great fiction, I think, has that measure of objectivity, you know, that lasts outside the writer's consciousness. And very often, and I mean, I don't put myself in the great writer category, but I put myself in a writerly category. Very often, you don't know what you've done. You don't know what you've done. Somebody will say, but it was really interesting that, like in my book Cousins, which was the one before last, I have three women narrators of different ages. And somebody said to me, Oh, are they the knowns who are the Nordic spinners of fate? And I said, oh, my God, they are the knowns. All right. 
I, right. I didn't sit down and think, oh, I know, I'll write a book with the knowns yes. in it. <clears throat> it's just that, you know, my knowledge of the knowns, I had obviously got into these and got across to this guy's consciousness through some completely unconscious bridge. I mean, I think one of my f- favourite writers really is Dickens. I mean, Dickens yes. is, is yes, for me, me a sort yeah. of... And, um, you know, I maybe I'm about to get in trouble with the bishop for saying this, but I think... You know, Dick, I think you're always in so much trouble that Dickens is off again. Well, no, I was going to say I really do think Dickens is the sort of co-author the author of Christmas. You know, I mean, there is. Oh there, yes. You know, there is a sort of we're um, Christmas caroling, though, are we? Well, I'm just. You know, this is probably going to go out um, just before Christmas. This one, so I quite like to just like have a sense of. Uh, um, I, I went to see at the Old Vic. Last mm. year, Christmas Carol, um, with that Welsh actor, uh, his name has escaped me. I, I, I was, I was uh, so excited and thrilled and expanded by going to see it um, for, for for weeks afterwards. Actually, probably more than than, uh, you know, the reading of the Gospels that I should have been. But, you know, so, sometimes you can take something. I mean, you know, it's it seems to me to be the absolute meeting point of my faith and my... Something like Christmas Carol is the meeting point of my faith and it, and, and my social conscience. Um, and I, I adore this time of year. I'm not a humbug. I love Christmas. I think people are better at Christmas. I think there's a there is a magical quality to Christmas. Are you a, you're you're not a Christmas humbug, are you? Absolutely not. Oh, good. and I love a Christmas Carol. And I'll tell you an interesting thing about this. Perhaps you know it, but I'll tell you anyway. He started that as a as a pamphlet, as a tract. He wrote a tract about the poor, and I think his publisher said, "Now come on, Charles, this is a bit dry. You know, do you really want to write that?" And then he turned it into a story. And look, you know, all this time later, you and I took um, my granddaughter, Rowan, who you know, um, to the Stratford version of it, and my grandson, Sam, to the Stratford version of it. I love it. I love it. And I remember going to see it at the Stratford East Joan Littlewood production as a child. It's a fantastic, it's a fantastic story. And I think that whole story of a baby coming into the world is absolutely archetypally true it's a new life it produces a degree of adoration in the mother and um, tenderness in other people and a desire to give that that whole story tells I mean I particularly love the magi coming from the east following their star I guess the story of Christmas also is the sort of intersection between your literary and your theological interests Yes, I mean, as you know better than most, it's very unlikely that Jesus was born in December. On the 25th. Certainly not the 25th. So it, it, it assimilates the whole pagan idea of the new year coming, the turning of the year. Um, but I think that that's what's great about those um, religious stories, that the great religious stories do assimilate the old beliefs, the old pagan beliefs, the notion of goodwill, the notion of the coming of the light um, and our reliance on light. So the idea that that coming of the light, the coming of the turning of the natural world coincides with the birth of a baby, any baby, 
Because any baby is the renewal of life. Any baby is, is a life that takes on life that is handed on. Any baby brings, well, with luck, most babies bring that degree of adoration and tenderness and joy and, and giving and, and selflessness. And then to make that baby the baby that grows into a man who somehow turns the world around and turns all values on its head is a brilliant piece of storytelling. I mean, it is a story. And terrifying as well. There's the, there's the, there's the, you see, you don't, you can't do Christmas without that sense of threat. You can't uh, do Christmas without Easter. Well, I mean, it, it's already there. I mean, you already, you know, you, I mean, I, my wife is pregnant. We, uh, we went and had the scan the other day. And the first, so the first view you have, oh, this is a terrible thing to say, I think. The first view you have of my uh, child, I don't even know if it's a boy or a girl, it's a skeleton. Yeah. It's the first thing you see. And I'm just like, oh my, the first thing I think of is like, the skeleton's associated with death. Yes. <laughs> you know? yes. And that birth-death type of yes. thing. You get that in Christmas quite a lot, which is, you know, a sword will pierce your own heart too type of thing about the Annunciation to Mary, that that there's, you know, this is a, a, a man who's born to die in a, and then the, the threat of Herod and... Well, it's that those... wonderful poem by T. S. Eliot. <coughs> yes, the yes, yes. The for the time, is it from the for the time being? Isn't it? Uh, it's in that collection. I think I'm not sure what collections it's yeah. in, but it is a wonderful poem. And you know, was it a birth or death we came for? And yes. there and their way in which I can't quote it, unfortunately. Yeah, but yeah. that coming of the Magi is very much what you're talking about the, the way in which it's is it a birth or is it a death because it is a death of course yeah. if, if you are a christian yeah you know what christ comes to say he turns everything upside down yeah. with the beatitudes and so on and he's under threat of death and we know he's going to die so we know the end of that story that's what's so when we rejoice at christmas we're rejoicing against the knowledge that this is not going to last and i think it's that too that sort of te temporary um, retreat from the normal anxieties of life, the sort of temporary sanctuary. That's what I was trying to think of. And 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 and, and just and also a sort of an assertion of its, uh, an assertion of the sort of dominance of the light over the darkness. Yes, a sort of that 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 through our holding the candle up, through our singing of carols, through our kneeling and praying, that there is a sort of a way of beating back the darkness through something joyous and... No, I agree. I think it's an utterly, utterly joyous time and there's no humbug at all. <laughs> I'm so glad I find it. <laughs> and um, I love carols. Yes, yes, yes. The holly yeah, and yeah. the ivy and... Yeah, and communal singing of them as well. Communal singing of carols. It's just fabulous. I mean... We used to go carol singing. I don't think you get that anymore, do you? Do you it's, quite, it's quite. We we find it hard to get a quarret, you know, to yeah. go carol singing. That and is... the pubs aren't that interesting. I remember a time when, uh, in fact, back when I used to be the vicar of Putney, uh, we used to make, be able when to go round. When we first round. met. Yes, yes. We we used to go round and uh, with a lantern. Uh, no, not with a lantern. <laughs> <laughs> But, but you, you know, know, you could do carol singing on the streets, and now it's you know that the Sally Army heroically sort of do their thing um, publicly. Um, but it's 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 harder to it's harder to get people to go out, and it's harder to get an audience for. I don't think people sing the way they used to. 
I don't think they're singing the way they used to be. And tell you another thing, you don't get you don't get whistling anymore. Have you noticed? I can't whistle. No, but you might not whistle. You but I, when you grew up, I bet people whistled. Well, just whistling in the street. Yeah. Oh, I see. Whist- walking down the street, whistling. People whistle. People don't whistle. People used to whistle while they were whistle while you work. I can't. I can't. Wi- I can whistle. I can't whistle. <laughs> It would seem quite a weird thing to do that, to walk down the street whistling. How did how we had this conversation? Well, it came well, well. Christmas. well, Sally Vickers, it's just a joy to sit here and talk to you and to uh, learn all about uh, your novels and your life. And uh, as always, it's great pleasure and profit that I sit and talk to you. Thank you very much for coming and talking to well, me. Thank you, Giles. It's lovely to be here. <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode of Confessions with me, Giles Fraser. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate and review it. And do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be joined by another guest next week for another episode of Soul Bearing, and I do hope you'll tune in then. And do check out the website, unheard.com. <laughs>